Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry. Hello and welcome to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. Folks, today, let's talk about getting older. One of the many changes that COVID and the pandemic has inflicted on society, one thing that has brought into focus is that older people in society and the risks they face, the isolation and the need for us to do more to look out for them, especially as we'll all be there someday. The truth is, for most of us, we don't want to think about aging or what it would be like to care for an elderly relative. Well, this week's Real Health is all about getting older, especially for people who don't want to talk about it. And it's the catchy title of Dr. Lucy Pollock's new book. She's a consultant specializing in the care of older people. And over the next 30 minutes or so, we'll be answering lots of aging questions. Should dad be driving? If not, who can stop him? What are the secrets of the best care homes? When does fierce independence become bad behavior? And who decides what happens when we become ill? And lots of other questions too. Dr. Lucy Pollock, welcome to Real Health. How are you? Thank you very much, Carl. I'm well. Thank you for inviting me. We're delighted to have you on. This is a fascinating topic. Uh, I've seen your book. I've read your book. And I said to my producer, we have to have you on the show because it's really interesting. And it brings all these questions up. Presumably, at the start with, this has been a very tough year for the clients that you deal with. The last 12 months have been very difficult, I'm sure. Yeah, you're right. I think it's been very tough for everybody. It's been tough for young people as well. But it has been particularly tough for older people who are vulnerable and, you know, are, are were already lonely in many cases before this. And that has heightened that. And um, it's heightened inequalities across lots of settings in education, but also in health. And it has just made people frightened. And there's been a lot of loss and um, really heart-rending stories for families and for older people. So I am very much looking forward to this spring and to the vaccines. And I hope to a start of a normal life again. And how have your clients been coping? What kind of mechanisms have they been using to get through it? That's a really good question. And actually, some people have, have, have done really well and hats off to them because actually a lot of older people have embraced new technologies. We've all learned so much. Look at us sitting here on Zoom. Never would have done that. Well, I wouldn't have a, this time a year ago. And and lots of my old, you know, there's this cliche that older people can't handle new technology. That is tripe. And lots of older people really have, you know, are fantastic on um, tablets and so on, talking to their family all over the world. That's made a big difference. I think communities have come together. That is, that's a real thing. That's not just soppy sentimentality. It is true that people have started looking out for their neighbours and have, you know, collected prescriptions and food and shopping and the rest of it, but also just that little bit of conversation that's made a big difference for people. There's been lots of kind of networks set up. I think, um, you know, here in the UK, we've got a development of village agents, which are, uh, work in cities as well as in villages just somebody to knock on the door or make a phone call. And that's a direction we should have been going in anyway. And the, the, the pandemic has kind of accelerated that development. So there's been some good stuff. And, um, and people, older people like young people have taken up new hobbies, doing different things. You know, it's, it has brought a lot of challenges, but people have risen to that challenge very well in many cases. And in terms of challenges, it's probably fair to say it's brought into sharp focus issues around ageing in terms of maybe parents or relatives that people really didn't want to deal with. And it's probably accelerated that issue. 
I think that is true, Paul. And I think the difficulty is there's been good and bad things about that. We've started talking about things that we should have been talking about and could have been talking about but didn't want to. But also it has made those conversations more difficult for some people because they've been done in a situation of urgency or in an emergency. And actually, um, one of the things I've learned over 25 years of working with older people is that a lot of these conversations are much better had in a calm space, in uh, in a happy moment with a cup of tea, not when an ambulance driver is standing there saying, right, chop, chop, we're off to hospital. You actually, you know, these are conversations you need to have um, in good times. But again, also the thing that has been highlighted is the fact that we need to get better at having conversations. We need to get, but professionals need to improve their, their ability to empathise and understand that some of these conversations are every day for us but are not every day. They are once in a lifetime for our patients and their families, and they are really delicate. So we need to get better at handling them. And then also what I hope we're going to do is improve the understanding of the issues for my patients and their families. For years, I have felt that sometimes I have these conversations and the power is in the wrong place. I kind of, I know what the questions are. I know what the answer should be. I know what you can say. I know what you what you should ask. And that doesn't feel fair to me. I, I feel my patients and their families need to know and they need to feel able. There are things that people don't feel able to talk about. Oh, my God, we need to talk about them. And people need to be kind of given the permission and the words to start talking. Okay. On, on that note, we're going to go through some of those issues and concerns now and work our way through them. Um, in the book, you start with how to be old, and that's something that we need to understand. So it's a perfect place to begin. Let's chat about that. Yeah, I've, I've realized, I think, that people are good at being different ages. Don't you think? There are some people who are really terrible toddlers, and then they grow up to be fantastic entrepreneurial spirit in later life and there are kids who are really hopeless at being a teenager and they turn into somebody very empathetic later on and some people seem to be very good at being old and they seem to have a knack for it and I've watched my patients and asked their advice and been told so many things about you know a lot of it is about having a sense of humor it's about not worrying it's about taking each day as it comes there are things we can learn from from older people and uh, and i they're nice things to hear um but also there are loads of things that we can do while we're young that make our old age better so you know i mean the big really obvious one that people um perhaps don't actually realize how much difference it makes is exercise And you are never too old to start taking some exercise. You're never too young either. And it doesn't have to be about squeezing yourself into a leotard. This is gentle exercise that you build into your routine and that you enjoy and makes a huge difference as you get older. It's the one thing that allows us to live, live healthy longer lives as well as just longer lives. Medicines can make you live longer. They don't make you live healthier. And for those who are bad at being old, I'm intrigued what you're going to tell me Like in terms of what what, what do you see? Uh, is it being cranky? Is it that stereotype of being cranky as you well, get older or what is it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think we've all of us probably encountered older people who are um, not necessarily rewarding to be with and, um, uh, and may not be very happy themselves. 
And that may be why they're, they're difficult. So, and that's the same at any age, to be honest. Of course, there are younger people who are pretty hard going as well. Um, what do I know? I mean, I think when I talk about bad behavior, what I'm really often talking about is somebody who is pretty stubborn, who is very independent, who is proud and has their dignity and does not want to change anything and is hanging on to their independence for dear life. And actually, I really respect those people. But I also know that for a family, they can drive you completely nuts. So some of this is about how do you have those conversations about when is when is it right to say, okay, guys, I know I can't do that anymore. I will have some help. I know you're worried about me. Um, that's making your life miserable. Okay, let's make, I I will uh, make some changes to my life. So how do you have those conversations that allow that to happen? But also the flip side is, when should a family just stand back and say, okay, you're driving us nuts, but actually it's your life. We're worried sick about you, but you're going to take some risks. And one of my colleagues describes this as kind of helicopter parenting, but directed up a generation instead of down. And sometimes we need to stand back and say, you're responsible for your own life. You can do those things. And I am just going to take a deep breath and allow you to do that. And that's that can be really hard. And so if siblings are listening in who have older parents uh, and that clash of a conversation happens a lot, which it can do. So what you're saying to them is sometimes step back and allow the parent to behave as they want to behave. Yeah. And a lot of it is about honesty as well, isn't it? we're, We're very good about talking about things in the abstract and other people's parents and things like that. But actually, when it comes to our own, these relationships are often really complicated and um, you know, some people have really easygoing relationships with their parents. They have no secrets. They know everything. But actually, other people have got, you know, you've hit midlife. You're in your 50s or whatever. And actually, you've got a 50-year history of a pretty complicated relationship with a parent. And getting the honesty into that can, can be quite difficult without ending up in a blazing row about something, working out what is support and what is control. So, for example, um, you know, should my patient, Betty, is a bit dodgy about what medication she takes and her daughter, Claire, is really frantically worried about that and she wants to control mom's medications, but Betty actually has got her own way of doing it. It looks like chaos, but actually when you go through it in real detail, actually Betty knows exactly what she's doing and she's made some good decisions about her medication. They're not what her doctor suggested, but actually um, when we look at it more carefully, I, I sometimes find that actually somebody's got a good handle on what they're doing um, and, and they're, they're actually being very sensible, but their family don't realise that. So, so it's that kind of conversation also about risk, like the driving one, um, and also about things like falls and making adaptations to your home and so on. When should a family step in and say, actually, do you know you are going to have to have a stair lift? To somebody who really does not want to change anything about their house. I've had, I've, you know, one of my patients would not have a stair lift because it meant she was going to have to move a picture on the wall. And there's no way she was ever <laughs> going to make that picture. You know, so these are good conversations. And and they are, and I love that you're smiling about it because actually there, there's a lot of room for humor in these situations as well. But just saying, actually, it's fine. Yeah. And one of the things you talk about are the, is the four things about falls. Let's delve into that a little bit. Yeah, so falling is a really common problem for older people. And one of the interesting things about it is that falling can change your life 
very dramatically, not just because of the injury, because that'll mend, the bone will mend, but what does not mend is the confidence. And so people are afraid of falling, and that's one of the reasons that we don't really talk about it very much, because they're afraid and they also think it's inevitable. And they think that falling is something that is always going to happen. In fact, the evidence now is that falling is not inevitable. We can't prevent all falls, but we can reduce the risk. And there are things that you can do that reduce the risk of falling. So I talk about um, my lovely patient, Ellen, who's had a fall, but she doesn't seek help. And, you know, as as she says, you know, it's just one of those things and I don't like to make a fuss. And a lot of older people will say that. But actually, there are moments when you do need to make a fuss. And when, he, when you've had a fall, especially one that's not explained, when it's, you know, if it's a slip on an icy puddle and anybody could have fallen there, that, okay, fair enough, that happens. But if you just kind of find yourself on the floor, or you've got increasing problems with your balance, or one of your knees is giving way, or whatever it is, that's a good moment to seek advice. So that's one of the things about, about, about falls. The other is that you can do things um, to reduce your, your own risk of falls. Uh, exercise is the classic one. And it doesn't have to be going to the gym. This is just about maybe lifting a can of baked beans every day in the air, you know, and or um, just standing and maybe doing, you know, I say a squat. That sounds terrifying as though, you know, your bum is hovering, hovering off the floor. No, a squat can just be getting down as low as you can and standing up again. And you may be holding on to the sink while you're doing it. That's fine. Anything that just puts a bit of strain on the on the body might make you a bit of puffed out, a bit puffed out. That is going to improve your outlook. And it genuinely the science is there. That's the other interesting thing. People have done really good studies on this in real live older people, and it makes a difference. So that that's another thing to learn. Um, then there are things about what you should expect from doctors. You know. They need to look at your medicines. Medicines are implicated in falls a lot. They need to think about why you fell. They need to forensically listen to what happened before you fell. What was there a warning sign? And so on. So I talk a bit about that, what, what you should expect from the medical side. And then also this thing about confidence. You know, when do you let having a fall change how you live? Or when, how do you get your confidence back so that you can... It's so sad when I see people who never go out of the house again. And it might just be the one step at the front door that is stopping them from doing that because that's where they fell. And this is almost a kind of PTSD about it. How do you get beyond that so that you can go on living a happy and fulfilled life? So, you know, so important to get the right advice, make a little adaptation, get your confidence back. So we talk about how you do those things. And you've mentioned it a few times, but certainly exercise is a key thing to fight the issues around aging. So, you know, people listening in have parents who are older, encouraging Mm -hmm. them to move during the day, be it in terms of walking, you know, body weight resistance exercise. They can slow down the rate at which they age and increase their levels of independence and their levels of strength and reduce their risk of falls just by moving. And it's really interesting exercise because it also makes you feel good. It makes you happy which I think people don't realize, and almost because we call it exercise, that kind of sounds like kind of something you don't want to do. Whereas just keeping moving, keeping active, you know, when you're watching TV and the adverts come on, stand up, you you know, and you don't have to do cartwheels, you just need to stand up. 
And that makes a difference. And, you know, the really interesting studies in younger people showing that if you stand up every 20 minutes when you're in a desk job, your sugar levels fall to normal levels much faster than someone who just stays sitting down. You just have to stand up. We are really amazingly idle human beings. We like sitting on our bums a lot. And um, so giving yourself a little target of doing that, it's all about these modest increments. And then also when you've done it, the really big pat on the back. I love some of the internet coaches you know, they are very good when you get to the end of some kind of exercise at saying, you know, go me, you know, you've done a good job, be proud of yourself, feel good, take the buzz and and enjoy it. You know, I think a lot of people don't realise how much being active can make you smile. And is it fair to say that as opposed to trying to uh, uh, bark, it was the word I was going to use, that's totally the wrong word, but in saying if you had an older parent and you wanted them to do more exercise, as opposed to just telling them and trying to kind of almost force them to do it, but doing it together is a really easy way to get more exercise into that, both on a relationship terms, but also on a, you know, introducing that person to the benefits of exercise. Yes. Yes. I think that's a good, that is a good point. None of us like being told what to do. Um, But I think realizing being, understanding how much benefit there is that the fact that you I I mean I didn't know until quite recently that your muscles are where half your immune system lives and if you build your muscles you build your immunity as well people don't realize that and 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 um that kind of thing I think sort of understanding the benefits and then you're so right doing something nice together and you suddenly realize that it's just a walk to the end of the street maybe it's listening to the birds and standing outside for a while and and that's exercise. You know, that counts. All of those little things count. And, uh, and that's that's very important. So you're right. I think sharing something across generations. And I saw a woman the other day who'd done a Zoom exercise class or an online exercise class with her daughter in Australia. And it was a really just a nice thing to do. They were both there at the same time doing the same thing, despite all the barriers. So, yeah, I think it's a good good idea. You're listening to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. Okay, let's bring it on to driving, uh, a contentious issue, I'm sure, without a doubt. And presumably it's down to, you know, a, a, a removal of independence, but driving is important and it's a consideration to be to talk about. Yeah, so it's a really big one, driving, because obviously it is, um, it's iconic because it's about your independence, but it's also actually genuinely practically important, especially if you live in a rural area or anywhere where the public transport's not as good as it should be, and that is pretty much everywhere. Um, so it is a very important thing. Most older drivers are actually very good safe drivers, and that's fine. And also, most older drivers know when they need to stop driving, and they do so with grace, and they step away from the car, and that's fantastic. But there is a group of people who, for one reason or another, just do not have insight into their into their driving. So that is a that is a problem area. Um, and the rules will be slightly different in the UK from Ireland as well. But basically the the important thing is being able to have a conversation about it. The bottom line is if somebody has dementia in the UK, the DBLA have to know about that. Um, And that it doesn't mean you necessarily can't drive because dementia, one has to remember, is a real spectrum. And people can be diagnosed very early in the condition when it's not causing very many problems and their judgment about driving is fine. They may not be able to have a brilliant memory and score, but driving's not all about memory. Driving's about judgment and reflexes and 
being able to judge distance and so on and plan routes and, uh, and this kind of thing. So actually, there are people with dementia who, who are perfectly safe drivers. But there are people with dementia who are definitely not safe drivers. And uh, it usually becomes fairly obvious when they need to be taken off the road. Um, and the DVLA will in the UK will revoke their license. But there's a more subtle group, which is people who don't necessarily have any kind of formal diagnosis, but they are just a worry. Their judgment is becoming impaired. Their eyesight may not be as good as it was. Their reflexes aren't great. And they have no insight. And they say, I've always been a brilliant driver. You know, I've never had an accident. I've never heard, I haven't, I have heard it so often. Nice old chap will say, I've never had an accident. I've been driving for 50, 60 years. I've never had an accident. You think, yeah, but you're going to have one now. So how does a family have that conversation? Again, it's that thing about honesty. If there's, if there's several children in the family, I would make sure that you get together so that you're all singing off the same hymn sheet. And I know that sounds a bit like bullying, but actually it is very important. And these conversations are often better if everybody's on the same page. Um, and then you make some plans and think before, if you're the, the child of the, you know, the adult child, just, I think it's important to remember this is going to be a difficult conversation and it's going to be a sad moment. Don't underestimate how difficult that is going to be. If you try and imagine yourself in those shoes, somebody saying to you, you're never going to drive again, it's going to be hard. So maybe sometimes explore what the options are going to be. You know, you don't want to commit yourself to driving your mum to everywhere she wants to go to three times a day for the next 10 years, but you do want to have some suggestions. And then I think, you know, one of my friends said, um, he he broached it with his dad. He said, you know, dad, you've always been a really good driver. I'm, I've always been proud of your driving. I love you were the best overtaker in the district. <laughs> but I'm worried about you now and I'm worried that the roads are busier now and that things have changed. So I think it's kind to acknowledge there are genuine changes and, and things are different. And that means somebody can maybe sometimes step away and maintain their dignity and say, actually, I don't, I don't like the way other people drive these days. I'm going to take myself off the road because there are too many nutters on the road. And that's fine. That's a good way to do it. So it's a difficult one, but it is certainly one way you can take your courage in your hands. You can ask the, the, the doctor for advice as well, and they're often very well placed to give that advice. And then there are um, a, a raft of medical conditions where the rules are very clear that you're absolutely not allowed to drive. And so, again, it's worth knowing those, particularly about eyesight. So, yeah, it's a tricky one, but it is one that brings relief all around when somebody makes the right decision. And dementia, you mentioned it there, it is becoming a lot more common. How can people deal with that if they've got dementia with their adult parents? Oh, Carl, dementia deserves an entire episode to itself or maybe about six episodes because it is such a big one. It is difficult. And I was told years ago, when you've met someone with dementia, you've met someone with dementia, one person, everybody is different. That's one of the things to remember. And it's such a big subject, but I think there are two things that you can kind of divide it into. One is how do you end up with a diagnosis? How do you know? A lot of the difficulty for older people is 
how do I work out what is normal? I should expect this to happen. I've forgotten this or, you know, I get I get to the top of the stairs and I think, what am I doing up here? And I know I'm never going to remember until I get back downstairs again. Then I'll remember and I have to get back up. That's fine. That's normal. What is common but not normal? So I leave work. I park the car in a different place every day, in the, either in the multi-story or wherever, one of the car parks at work, and I get out and I struggle to remember where I've put the car. That's normal. If I forgot the way home, that would not be normal. So where, and that's an obvious example, but there's lots of sort of subtlety within that. When does somebody's forgetfulness become problematic? Uh, So there's good questions about that. And then there's also questions about how do you recognize the different kinds of dementia, because some of them have got a kind of different pattern to them that can be quite deceiving, like people who very much fluctuate from day to day, and they seem fine one day, and then the next day you think, you're completely away with the fairies, and you think, is this an infection or something, but then they come back to rights the, the day after that. And that is a really interesting form of dementia that's a bit commoner than people think that's called Lewy body. And when I talk to my patients about it or their families and I say, I think this might be it. And I give them some information. I suggest they go and look at it. A family will often come back and say, oh, we read it on the Internet. That is exactly what mum is like, that you've got her to a T. And that's a huge relief. And that feeling, I think a lot of people are. It's, it's interesting. People are frightened of getting a diagnosis of dementia and about talking about it. But actually, my experience is often when you acknowledge that that is the problem, that this is more than just benign forgetfulness, there's actually, oh, thank God somebody said it. It's what we've been thinking all along. And now we can make some plans. So there's that about getting to the diagnosis. And then there's the, the what do you do next? You've been given a diagnosis of dementia. You walk out of that clinic. What are you meant to think next? Well, the answer is life goes on. You're going to do the shopping next week like you did it last week. And in the long term, you're going to make some adaptations. And that's where your family comes in and you make plans and you start making adaptations to to life. But actually, it's not usually an absolute helter-skelter. It's usually a process that you work your way through And remember that people can live, again, very happy and fulfilling lives with dementia. But that is not true for everybody. And there are some really horrible things that can happen with dementia. And we need to acknowledge those because they're really painful, upsetting, sad things where people can end up very, very isolated. Families can feel so worried. Are we doing the right thing? Is it okay? You know, the honest one is, I I wish my dad was dead. And and you think, am I allowed to think that? Of course you are allowed to think that. You are allowed to love somebody very, very much and yet see that actually they're having a very difficult time and that nobody can make that better. In some circumstances, it's very hard to make life better. Not every time, but when you're in that difficult situation, you need to be allowed to voice those thoughts And the other thing about dementia is that it's still a diagnosis that comes with a a shame, with a label, with a taboo. And that is utterly, utterly wrong. Shame has no role in dementia. It must not be allowed to show its ugly face. This is an illness that affects so many people and their families. And we've got to grow up about it and talk about it properly. 
My final question is a little bit different, actually. It's what have you learned from working with older people in terms of advice that you've got from them about how to live a better life? We, we Every now and again on the show, we do Lessons of Lives episodes where we chat to people who've had really interesting lives about their advice, what they would say to people, what they would say to the younger selves. And there are certain common things that come up all the time. And one is always worrying less. Be less yeah. of a worrier. And I know it's for it, and it can be often so easy to say it, but every single person we talk to says it in, for those types of episodes will say to us, worry less and enjoy the moment. And what, what I'm fascinated to see, what have you learned from people? Uh, I think that's very, very good advice. And it is a recurrent theme. But I think also older people are well placed to give that advice, Carl, because one of the things they have that the young do not have is perspective. So when you're 19 or 21 and a relationship ends, or even in your 30s or whatever, and something goes wrong, you lose your job or something catastrophic happens, it can feel like the end of the world. And you feel as though life is never going to be good again and that nothing happy is ever going to happen again. And I've got lots of older people. In fact, I was even talking to one yesterday and I said, oh, you've obviously got a really good husband. She said, yeah, but the first one wasn't any good. He ran off with my best friend. And she laughed about it. But obviously at the time, it was a really painful experience. Now, years later, she's in her 80s. She's really proud that this, this second marriage has lasted 26 years. And she reflects on her life as having been a good life. So it contained pain and unhappiness. But actually, the big picture is it's like um, sometimes you feel like you're on a roller coaster. And when you're young, the down in the roller coaster can feel very, very low. The older person isn't on the roller coaster anymore. They're looking at the roller coaster and they can see that after the down, there comes an up. And I think that is a really precious thing for the rest of us to learn, that time gives you perspective. That, I think, is probably the best advice I've been given. Dr. Lucy Pollock, it's been absolutely fantastic to chat to you today. You have a calm, reassuring, loving voice that is an absolute pleasure to listen to, along with brilliant advice for people in terms of if they have parents that are aging and have any concerns, some really good tips and advice. And of course, your book, The Book About Getting Older, is out now in bookstores and online as well. Dr. Lucy Pollock, thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. Folks, I really hope you enjoyed that episode. A little bit different, but really important advice there. As ever, I'll be back next week with another Real Health Show. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter at CarlHenryPT. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. We'll see you next week for more Real Health. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry.